In a previous episode, I pointed out a bias in a paper about measurable correlates of consciousness. I did not approve of the statement that cephalopods are conscious. Mind you, I don't approve of the statement that cephalopods are not conscious either. In the context of an academic paper, I expect care and precision. So, for example, in my own work on the TICL, I try hard to make statements of the form, according to the TICL, such and such is the case. I don't always do this perfectly, but I try. I think the authors of that paper do too, which is why that particular claim stood out as a bias. Hearing the episode, Tam Hunt, the paper's first author, wrote to me to ask if I had read the work of Peter Godfrey Smith on cephalopod consciousness. Tam suggested two books by the author. I acquired the more recent one, Metazoa, which has been an excellent exploration. It's an odd topic to build a conversation about consciousness around, given that Tam and I have not had much previous correspondence, but one has to begin somewhere, doesn't one? Friendships have sprung from less. Cephalopods are a branch of mollusks, which include octopuses, squids, and cuttlefish. I'll be quoting a lot in this episode from the book by Godfrey Smith, in particular a chapter called The Octopus. Godfrey Smith writes, quote, The cephalopod body, flexible and muscular, has great potential for action, but brings with it special demands. In an octopus arm, the degrees of freedom are almost countless. It is hard to organize this body to make actions work, but a great deal can be done if you can get it to work. Perhaps for these reasons, octopuses embody a design very different from our own. The octopus nervous system is decentralized. About two-thirds of the neurons are not in the brain, but in the arms, especially in the upper arms. These act not just as outlying sensors and relay systems feeding the central brain. There is an apparent delegation of the control of some motions to the arms themselves." Unquote. All right, so right away we have an interesting situation. The cephalopod nervous system is organized with essentially nine different brain centers, one for each arm and another in the body. These are sparsely connected to one another. What we know of the mammalian brain with regard to consciousness is that it seems to correlate exclusively to the thalamus and the cerebral cortex, and its presence is limited to a state of activation coming from the brainstem, which causes wakefulness. None of these structures has a homologue in the cephalopod brain. But we cannot rule out consciousness on these grounds. Think of the octopus as a species of aliens. Natural selection has equipped them with eyes, for example, by an entirely independent evolutionary pathway from ours. Might it also have contrived to produce a conscious mind by independent means? Given the opportunity to study the octopus nervous system, I would look for integration among a network of cellular elements. I might attempt to engineer an octopus EEG array. The method might be something called electroencephalopodography. Functional connectivity between the disparate brain centers could be calculated. Hell, if we can secure one mollusk, we've already got an N of 8. Each individual brain center could also be investigated because it might be that the neural correlates of consciousness show up only in, say, the central brain. Tam, you want to go in on a grant with me and see what we can find out? Maybe we can get together and discuss the idea over a plate of calamari. An alternative assumption might be that the nervous system of cephalopods does not produce consciousness at all. After all, the human spinal cord, brainstem, and cerebellum are highly complex and organized structures that can do a lot of valuable work in the absence of consciousness. In the same section, Godfrey Smith goes on, quote, In many situations, octopuses apparently behave as a whole, but it has long been unclear exactly what the relationship might be between the central controlling brain and those neurons in the arms. 
It was suspected in early years of research that central control over the arms is quite limited, and an octopus might even have little knowledge of where its arms are at any given time. This was suspected because of the animal's difficulties with some artificial laboratory tests, and also by the fact that the connections between arms and brain within the nervous system were rather slim. The lab that has looked most closely at these questions since then is Benny Hockner's in Jerusalem. A clever experiment done there showed that an octopus can use vision to send a single arm along a novel path out of the water and back again to reach food. This seems to show considerable central control. The report of the experiment by Tamar Gutnick and her collaborators also notes that when octopuses do the task well, there seems to be some local exp exploration by the arm as it goes, though this is just an impression people have watching them. The same lab has reported neurobiological work suggesting that octopuses do not have a map of their, of their body within their brain, as we do. This suggests that if an octopus does have some sense of how its body is arranged at a given moment, it achieves this quite differently from us." Unquote. Surely there is no benefit to having eyes if the information collected by them is of no utility in moving the arms, and thus the octopus. In something like a mammal, we have a brain and spinal cord which is connected by means of long neuronal processes, axons, to the extremities. We send out signals to the muscles which move about accordingly, and we receive incoming signals from receptors on the body parts. None of these distal extremities has any capacity for consciousness on its own. But unlike the octopus, the extremities do not function behaviorally on their own either. With the octopus, I wonder what the behaviors of the individual arm consist in, if it is separated from the body of the animal. Perhaps a more humane experiment would be to use a local anesthetic such as lidocaine to block the narrow input and output signals from the individual arm. This would isolate the arm to be subjected on its own to behavioral and cognitive puzzles. In any case, information from the central brain must be able to influence the behavior of the arms under normal circumstances. These animals are intelligent enough at least to notice a nearby shark and hide from it or otherwise take evasive action. It's not as if an individual arm touches something, which it suspects of being a shark, a bad idea if you want to survive for long, and then that arm seeks a place to hide while the rest of the octopus remains oblivious. Nor does the head of the octopus see what it recognizes to be a shark and then stare in terror, unable to warn the arms to ferry the body away. It seems likely to me that the distributed brain of the cephalopod is simply a different arrangement of the same kinds of components we have. We do not need to be aware of our diaphragm for the lungs to breathe in and out. The unconscious direction of the diaphragm is controlled in the brainstem. Imagine if we had eight brainstems associated with eight different lungs, each breathing independently through slits along the torso. The breathing behavior of the eight little mouths might be totally uncoordinated. This probably isn't as good a system as the one we have now, and natural selection seems to have favored the present system. That's not the point. There are many different ways to construct an animal. That's all I'm saying. Even so, it's possible to speculate on the octopus having not just one mind, but many. Peter Godfrey Smith explores this idea in Metazoa. He makes the case first that octopuses are conscious based upon their apparent interest in novelty and the fact that they seem to undergo different moods. They seem to be able to be stressed or playful, reserved or inquisitive at various times, just as mammals do. He makes the claim, as I accuse Tam Hunt of doing, that octopuses are clearly conscious invertebrates. All right, fellas, fine. I'll accept the premise. It's probably right. Frogs and finches and rodents are all probably conscious. This podcast is focused on the detail and challenging our assumptions. 
In another context, I might put together a perfectly legitimate argument against octopus consciousness. Tam could cogently do the same thing. That's no fun right now, so I'm going to take the position that octopuses are conscious for the purpose of considering the weird case of their nervous system structure. Godfrey Smith writes, quote, The octopus also raises puzzles. I said in the previous chapter that part of the explanation for the evolution of experience lies in the origin of a new kind of self, a self tied together in ways that give it a point of view, ways that make it into a subject. A good deal of this can be described as a kind of integration of the animal. Integration has been a theme in quite a lot of recent thinking about materialism and consciousness. Sometimes it is seen as the crucial thing in explaining how a physical system can have experience. In the octopus, though, we see an animal that is very complicated but less integrated. An octopus is still in many ways a whole, a center of action and sensing, but one organized in an unusual way. All these questions are made difficult by ongoing uncertainty about what the animals can do and how they are set up inside, but let's assume for the sake of exploration a view sketched earlier in this chapter. Octopus behavior in this view arises from a mixture of central and peripheral control. What might this feel like from the inside?" Unquote. Before I go on reading from Metazoa, I should do some clarification. I am of the view that integration is critical to consciousness. I've made that clear all along. I have plenty of evidential and logical reasons for taking this position. Here, the author is using the term integration quite loosely. As a human organism, the systems of the body are clearly integrated with one another. If they weren't, then we wouldn't be an organism. The heart pumps blood through the lungs where it becomes oxygenated and drops off excess carbon dioxide. That blood is delivered by the circulatory system to all the body's tissues. Just in that way, the cells of the pancreas and the skeletal muscle and the brain are all involved together. Whether we are talking about digestion or hormonal regulation or immunity or whatever, we could speak in terms of an integrated organism. Plus, the whole body moves around in space together by means of material connectedness. This is not the integration of the type that theories of consciousness are dealing with. The key difference is the amount of influence and the brief duration of time over which it occurs. It is the incredibly high level of integration over an incredibly brief period of time which differentiates the thalamocortical system from the rest of the brain and indeed the rest of the body. The key thing, I think, is that the return of causality to each element in the integrated system occurs within a window of time in which the outgoing causality is still occurring. Over this temporal window, each element is both a causer and an effector. Okay, let's go on. Quote, A first option is that the unusual design of the octopus does not make much difference. Although a zoomed-in view of the animal reveals a less integrated design, perhaps that is not very significant for the whole. An octopus often behaves in a very unified way. However, this does not settle the matter, as unity in behavior can arise by several different routes. Consider colonies of army ants, honeybees, and other tightly organized social groups, sometimes called superorganisms. In some respects, they too act as wholes, but beneath the colonial unit is a collection of individual agents, each of whom senses and acts. Those colonies remind us that teamwork, undertaken by a number of different individuals, can be powerful in giving rise to unified behavior." Unquote. So with regard to octopus centers of consciousness, the first option is a single, unified mind comparable to what we know as the human mind. I am most sympathetic to this model. Keep in mind that cells in the pancreas individually respond to sugar levels in the blood plasma with the release of insulin. 
The pancreas does not need a mind of its own, let alone the individual cells of the pancreas. If individual ants and honeybees go about their business, perhaps unreasonably described above as individual agents, we might observe the construction of coherent tunnels, or honeycombs, being constructed without an overarching conscious will. This colony, I think, is not unlike the tissue of the pancreas, or the lungs. The lungs are a nice example, in fact. They are complex structures not at all best described as a conglomeration of cells. In the case of ants and bees, our attribution of consciousness is probably a bit of an anthropomorphism. They have a head and eyes and little feet, and we can empathize with what they are up to. But then again, we can empathize with Daffy Duck, too, and nobody is claiming cartoons are conscious agents. For this reason, I am inclined, if I have to support one or another option for consciousness in cephalopods, to go with option one, the single mind. The arms have their own autonomous behaviors, inputs and outputs, but are themselves not conscious of anything. Let's look at the alternative options. Quote, we should then at least consider the possibility that an octopus is a being with multiple selves. There is a primary or most complex self, the central brain, but also eight smaller ones. These smaller ones might not be sentient or conscious, but the general shape of the situation would be one plus eight. Unquote. Wait, what? I have to assume that the author made a mistake here. What does he mean? They might not be conscious, but they are other selves. If they are not conscious, and only the central brain produces consciousness, then how is this different from option one? I think in the one plus eight model, he means nine individual conscious beings. He says selves, and this is a point of potential confusion. As I have previously described, there is the undeniable self as a point of view, and then there is apparently the dispensable self-construct. If we are talking about nine points of view, then as far as I'm concerned, we are talking about nine conscious beings. If we mean nine different self-constructs, that's another matter. I think the author is trying to distinguish between one conscious being and nine conscious beings in the total body of the octopus. This is plausible if there really is sufficient neural structure in each arm to produce its own mind, but in my opinion, such an integrated neural structure would be over-engineered for the function of an arm on its own. Natural selection doesn't tend to favor over-engineering, which would amount to the expenditure of more resources than necessary. Just because there are a lot of neurons localized to the arm doesn't tell us anything. There are more neurons, as I've informed you before, in the non-conscious human cerebellum than there are in the conscious human thalamocortical system. Interestingly, we are provided with a third option. Quote, yet another possibility, a third option, is not just one or one plus eight, but one plus one. The networks of nerve cells in the arms of an octopus are not only connected to the central brain, but connected sideways to each other, at the top of the arms. A few people have raised the possibility that the nervous systems in the arms are connected well enough among themselves that they all together form a big network that amounts to a second brain, one that is larger than the central brain, if all the arms neurons are included." Unquote. Okay, this is at least conceivable, if not plausible. A single body with two or more separate minds, which are not aware of one another and have distinct life experiences with a common objective purpose. To consider this kind of possibility with respect to cephalopods requires that we apply the same reasoning to the human in his brain. Neural correlates of consciousness research demonstrates essentially that the conscious minds we know of, the mind that is you and the one that is me, are directly associated with the thalamocortex. Remove your cerebellum and you will have symptoms, neurological issues with balance and coordination, and perhaps even some kinds of cognition and memory, but you will feel whole, and your friends and family will not find you to be a changed personality or anything like that. In effect, it's like having your arm amputated. 
You'll have to adjust to the new situation. You might not be able to do everything you once could, but you are just the same unified being you always were. How do we know that the cerebellum wasn't a conscious brain in its own right? Its microstructure doesn't look like something which would be conscious. It is certainly not a highly integrated causal structure, like the thalamocortex. We can't know for sure that the cerebellum is not having its own subjective life back there, unknown to you, but such a statement can be reduced to absurdity with a minimum of effort because we can't know that your left arm is not having its own conscious life either. Dear Tam, I appreciate the suggestion to look at Metazoa. As of this writing, I haven't finished the book yet, but I've already been more than compensated for my time by the ideas that have cropped up in it. Perhaps it's better to say the ideas have been dredged up from the sea floor. I went into this with the sense that octopuses are conscious, and I still lean the same way. The cephalopod nervous system presents us with a separate lineage upon which to do comparative correlates of consciousness, at least it might. Of necessity, which was kind of your point, I've had to apply my own Bayesian reasoning to the problem. I'll concede to that much if you'll concede that you were out of line writing that cephalopods are conscious as a settled matter of fact. They probably are. I'll agree to that. And if they are, then we might be able to learn something critical about the necessary and sufficient substrates of consciousness by comparing them to higher mammals. In doing so, we get to undertake an exploration not dissimilar from the investigation of an alien intelligence. Hopefully, it'll be a dry run, or a wet run more aptly, for the case of an extraterrestrial encounter in our lifetime. Matter of fact, it's hard to imagine something less terrestrial and more interesting than an octopus. Who needs H.P. Lovecraft when the sea is actually peopled by such enigmas, complete with creeping tentacles? Thanks again, your friend Jesse.